This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're so lovely. Up the ramp. Keep it going. A long walk. Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. I've arrived. Thank you. Oh, before we start, can I say thank you so much? So many people come here to see little me and my book. I'm touched. I'm really flattered. Thank you very much. Oh, right. I only need this to get up the stairs. I am old, but it's not as bad as all that. Ladies and gentlemen, in the next 60 minutes or so, I shall try not to deviate or hesitate, <laughs> or repeat. As, but you will, you I'm will. sure I will. I'm sure I will. It's a great, great pleasure to introduce Nicholas Parsons to you this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I don't know how many of you were around in 1967. That was the year of the summer of love, of flower power, oh. when the BBC introduced Radio 1 and changed the home service into Radio 4. And one of the attractions of Radio 4 in those days was, of course, just a minute. And 47 years later, Nicholas, who has been the chair on all but almost all of those occasions. No, all of them. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I did the original pilot and I'm still yeah, doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and did his and the programme and Bloody himself are most extraordinary longevity. But the irony is, hmm? Nicholas, you weren't that keen on chairing the programme. No, no. Why was that? The original chairman was going to be Jimmy Edwards. You may remember Jimmy Edwards? Well, he had a program on then called Does the Team Think? And he was very good at that, and he had other comedians, and they thought, oh, he's a sort of comedy chat show. Jimmy's the ideal person. And I was going to be on the panel, because I took Ian Messiter's idea to the BBC, because I wanted to do, I just won an award for a program, a satire program called Listen to This Space, and I wanted to do some improvised stand-up comedy. And I actually sold Ian's idea to uh, Radio 4, and I was going to be on the panel. And we had a young producer just come down from Cambridge called David Hatch, very talented young man. In fact, I've dedicated the book to him because mm. it's thanks to him was to we, we achieved anything. And um, he'd been just come down with the footlights from Cambridge, and he was one of his first jobs actually. And he came to me and he said, "You know, Jimmy's always playing polo on a Sunday when we want to do the pilot." <laughs> And he said, I don't think we're ever going to get him. So would you do me a favor? You do the pilot for me. I said, no, David, please, no, I'm not right for it. I, I just don't think I can do that job. He said, well, look, look, uh, do me a favor. You do the pilot for me, and if we get the series, you can go back on the panel. I said, all right. And we did the pilot. It was awful. <laughs> yes, I mean, this is a, the fascinating thing about show business. Some of the shows that have started so badly like the Arthur Haynes show, which I did, that was a disaster and became a big success. And the Just a Minute pilot was so bad, they didn't want it. Clement Freud and Derek Nimmo were on it, and they were good, but the other two were disgraceful. And they're not disgraceful, they were, <laughs> they, they, they just couldn't hack it. And um, uh, David came to me, he said, Nicholas, they didn't want this show. I had to fight to get it because he saw the potential. He was going to change this and change that. He said, the one thing they seemed to like in the pilot was your chairmanship. <laughs> so you're stuck with it. <laughs> and in show business, you don't turn down a good job. Far too fragile a profession for that. So uh, we got the series. 
I was a pilot. Uh, Derek Nimmo came in because he was free, and uh, and we had and then he had inspiration. He brought Kenneth Williams in. Kenneth struggled to begin with. He was all over the place. And if you listen to the early recordings, and I mentioned it in the book, I wasn't very good. I mean, I wasn't because it wasn't my natural métier. But in show business, if you've had a lot of experience, which I've had doing theatre and some other things, you find a way to make a job work for the show, but also work for you. And over the years, as I say in my do my one-man comedy show around the country, I must have done something right, because I'm still doing it after 47 years. <laughs> Sorry, Al, there's a bit of a long reply. I don't have to I like, we like long replies. The longer, the better. Mm. So, what, what, what did you notice it changing? Did you, did you change oh, it's the It's changed all the time. It's evolved. I mean, if you do a show, you, you can't rest on your laurels, not in show business. There's no truer expression than you're only as good as your last performance. And over the years, we've slowly adjusted it and tweaked it and improved it. Ian Messeter, who created the game, he used to be the, the, the sit beside me and he thought of the subjects, and he was the one who blew the whistle when the 60 seconds elapsed. But to begin with, he had all kinds of ridiculous ideas. I mean, he had a round where you couldn't use the uh, pronouns. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult enough anyway. And another round where you couldn't have plurals. <laughs> and it became so... Uh, they, they never got going. And so it became bitty-bitty. And it inhibited it. But he, we got the series, so he slowly dropped those, those little um, gimmicks which didn't work. And then, uh, uh, and originally, you, you had to, couldn't mention the title. I was the one who said, listen, you must give them some leeway. I think they should be allowed to repeat the title. And so they can repeat the title of the subject. And um, not, not the title of the show, no, the title of the subject. And so little things you do. And over the years, I mean, while Ian was around, we made little adjustments and so forth, and we found people who could do it well and couldn't. But in later years, I've made all kinds of little subtle changes. And as I said in the book, I, take no, I don't take a sort of credit for having contributed because I believe that if you are a true professional, you don't rest on your laurels, you consider everything, you find ways to improve everything. Even if you're in a play, you find little nuances you bring in to make your performance stronger and better. And I made little adjustments and suggestions, and slowly we polished it, honed it, tweaked it, I mean, there's one thing, but can I go on or do you want to no, ask me a question? Please, I'm, I'm enraptured. Please continue. Because originally, originally, for quite a long time, it was, uh, this, it was no hesitation, repetition, or deviating from the subject. And I said, listen, this is inhibiting them. They'll have more success if we have just no deviation. And then clever people like Paul Merton can challenge and come up with some ridiculous idea of deviation, which would be very funny, because it is the comedy that helps to make the show successful. You know, and so there's more scope. And there are always some very ardent Radio 4 listeners, you know, a bit pompous. And, <laughs> and you have to encompass them and all the new people who come on board. And there's a program called, um, uh, what's it, where we have to go Feedback. On feedback, yes, feedback. Thank you. I'm useful having it with me. <laughs> isn't it? I was asked to go on feedback because it had complaints that I had changed the rules of just a minute. Can you believe it? <laughs> so I went on feedback, and I defended my decision, and I said, I finished up by saying, if any show is going to achieve longevity, you have to find little ways of improving, tweaking, and adjusting, and so forth, and it gives more scope to the players if it's just deviation. They can be 
clever and improvisational on that. And so um, it, it, it changed. That's one obvious change. I mean, in later years, I've been doing things like um, giving people the benefit of the doubt, because, you know, it was, it's a, is it right or is it wrong? Because they get so upset. They're so keen, you know. <laughs> so if someone challenges, and I think it's not quite there, I say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, and if I can redress the balance later, I do. And I always remember, and I do redress balances like that. And so they're happy, because they know that I will think about this and maybe reward them. And then, of course, I've started doing things that, in later years, bonus points. So um, one of them would challenge, come in with that outrageous comment, which is very funny, helps the show. So I said, well, that was so funny. I'll give you a bonus point for that. But he was interrupted, so he gets a point, keeps the subject, and carry on. So it's all... <laughs> I didn't think that was funny. But, um, <laughs> if I can get laughs as easy as that, I'll <laughs> You're in the right place. Mm -hmm. Are questions deliberately sort of, uh, I mean, themes given to people who are, have to know about the subject? I mean, how much is it random and how much well, is it well, deliberate? What they do, I mean, is that uh, occasionally they think of a subject because somebody they know who's on the panel has some knowledge about it. Because it does help if you get a subject about which you know something. I mean, Ian Messiter did this occasionally with Kenneth Williams because Kenneth latterly loved doing the show. He, he never respected his work in the carry-on films and the other ones, because he got known for his funny voices. Actually, Kenneth, when he was younger, was a very good actor. I worked with him in rep, and, and he had ambitions to be accepted as a serious, dramatic actor. But when he came into the um, um, uh, um, Tony Hancock show, he started doing these character voices, which was so funny and original, he got big laughs. They got, got such big laughs that Tony Hancock eventually got rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you read his diaries, he had no respect for his success in that. He wasn't interested in commercial success. But in just a minute, he was self-educated. He came from a very humble background. And he used to read a lot and go to the library. So in just a minute, he had an opportunity to show off his knowledge, his erudition. So eventually, though he was struggling to begin with, he really loved the show. And it was his favorite job in the end. So Ian Messeter would occasionally give him a, a subject like um, Aphrodite. I don't know which one I mentioned in the book. And, uh, and he, would, he would just embrace himself. He used to play to the audience, you know. You know, get all like that. Mm, yeah, all the audience, you know. and, and, and he'd go off about Aphrodite. The others didn't really want the subject, because they knew bugger all about it. And he'd go, and occasionally he was challenged for hesitation within a few seconds. And he was absolutely livid. Because <laughs> he knew that subject had been given to him by Ian Messeter, so he could show off a bit. And then he'd go into a sock. <laughs> and I had to sort of coax him out of it. No, 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 you, you've ruined it now. You, no, you're a fool to yourselves. I'm going now. I'm just going to go now. No, 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 I'm going to, I'm not going to have nothing to say now. I'm going to withdraw from the whole thing. <laughs> uh, I've got something wonderful to say about everything. I didn't want to hear it. And so he would, <laughs> he would cover his frustration by a wonderful sort of performance like that, which the audience loved as you enjoyed it just then. If you, I'm glad you thought the impersonation was adequate. <laughs> and, and he'd go into a little bit of a sulk, actually. And I occasionally would have to try and coax him back again. And I'd twist a, a challenge and say, oh, Kenneth, 
No, that was a long challenge. And I think, baby, that you had it originally. You know, some excuse to get him back in again. And this, and I say, you know, this audience is waiting to hear from you. You know, they, they love it. Your audience, there, your audience can it. So brace yourself. Come, and I see him and he pull himself up, come. Give yourself to the audience. Oh. And he'd go again and he, he, was, he was happy again. He was also, he did become very good at the game eventually. And what is interesting is, there are lists at the back of the book, mm -hmm. which I didn't do. The, the, um, the chap who did the editing for me, he worked all these lists out. Those who've done the show most times, those who've done uh, have gone a whole minute most times and things like that. And I discovered people love lists. And I gave this book to somebody the other day to read because I had a copy. And the first thing they did, they look at the lists. <laughs> I said, well, that, that's not the book. The book is all the stuff in the middle. <laughs> and, um, and, and apparently, Kenneth did go quite a number of times without being interrupted. And talking of lists, Clement Freud, of course, was the past master of oh, yes. list making. Oh, well, that's, that's something quite else. That, that, that's, that's utterly different. That's a list of names in the book of those who competed the round mm -hmm. most of the time. But, but he had a, a technique, and it, which annoyed Wendy Richard, which is yes, all in the book. Exactly. It's all in the book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had this uh, technique of going, you know, and suddenly he'd. Uh, 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 going to a listing like uh, it was something to do with fruit juice and, and, and oranges and then apples and pears and bananas and raspberries and so forth. And Wendy um, Richard was livid and she challenged him, oh, he's listing again, he's listing. And I said, yes, there's nothing in the rules which says you can't list. No, there should be, there should be. No, he's listing. And, and it's very sad about Wendy because I knew her very well and I was very fond of her. But in her later years, she sort of morphed into Pauline Fowler. <laughs> and she used to sit there looking bloody miserable. I'm sorry to swear. And, uh, and, and if you, you know, it's a radio show. Being a lot of people listening to it didn't realize it was looking miserable. So she looked miserable, and then she'd challenge, and she was good at the game. And she'd get the subject. And then she'd do this thing and having an attacking uh, Paul Merton sometimes, and attacking um, um, thing. And my wife, who was sitting in the audience, said, you know, it's so embarrassing. You're sitting there. You know, it's cut out. You can cut all that out. Because we don't edit the show on the subjects you can't. It, it is the only truly, naturally spontaneous show in the whole of radio and television. There's no major editing. You can edit on the, the fun and the banter in between. And, and she could cut all that out. But the audience sat there and saw Wendy looking miserable. And she looked bloody miserable. <laughs> and, and, I, and then she, they stopped using her. In fact, Paul said, look, if she's on again, because um, one time, yes, Paul said something, and she, she challenged. And she said, he said, oh, no, Paul challenged her. That's right. And she said, you're, you're having a go at me, aren't you? You're always having a go at me. You do, what, what is it? Don't, don't you like me? And, you're, you're, and it's not good radio. <laughs> and the one's going, and so, and, and so Paul said, well, I'm sorry. If she's on again, I don't want to be in the show. And Paul was too valuable a, a player to, to lose. And then she says, the producer stopped using her. And she used to say to me, Nicholas, why don't they ask me back on just a minute? I love the show. And I said, yes, Wendy, and you're very good in it. But I just couldn't tell her, listen, darling, if you could lighten up a bit and enjoy it and not look so miserable, you know, pretend you are enjoying it, even if you're not, and don't interrupt the others and, and, have, and attack them, you might come back. But she, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell her. It was very sad, because she was good, very good in the game. 
and she was basically a lovely lady. Tell, tell us it's, about it's all in the book. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it's worth repeating. Tell us about this sort of dream, the dream team in a way that, which I kind of the classic like four lineup of Clement Freud, well, Derek Nimmer, Peter Jones, and Kenneth Williams. You no, know, that was the classic lineup mm -hmm. when it started, because we, we eventually settled into four regulars, which was um, um, Kenneth Williams, uh, Clement Freud, Derek Nimmo, and Peter Jones, and they were getting a little bit predictable in the sense they knew each other so well. And I felt that if the show continued with those four, it would probably fade away. In fact, when Kenneth died, the BBC uh, powers that be, they're not often, you know, they're, they're great administrators, but they're not often great producers. And um, I've got to be very tactful because I want to work for them. I can't <laughs> exactly. And um, they... Uh, they thought, because Kenneth was so wonderful in the show, that Kenneth was a show. And they thought they should take it off. And uh, I, I fought for it. And I said, listen, Kenneth is wonderful in the show, but Kenneth isn't the show. And we were saved, actually, by the World Service. And they used to send it out on the World Service then. And it was their favorite program. And the World Service said, oh, well, then we'll produce it. And there's an awful lot of inter in the different departments of BBC. And when the Radio 4 heard the World Service were going to record it, they said, oh, no, 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 we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. <laughs> and so we were saved. And, um, but you see, I believe if we'd stuck with those four and gone on, the show would have died a natural death. There were two programs on, uh, around that time called My Word, which was wonderful, and My Music. And they had the same four and, the, and a rather impersonal chairman, and they died a natural death. They, they were of their time. And I think we would have been of our time, and we would have faded away. So we slowly changed it. And now, if you listen regularly, you'll note the producer, and we have two or three different producers, never have the same four people in any recording. And we have a, a number of people who are very experienced and very good at the game, and they are always the sort of background of every recording. Because if you introduce someone new, it is such an incredibly difficult game. I mean, we make it sound easy. That's our job as professionals. But it's so difficult. They come up for the first time. Sometimes, like the one we did it was this week with Jonathan Ross, Jonathan was good immediately. But sometimes somebody comes on who uh, you would think, well, they, they, they'd be good at the game. But they just haven't got that sort of technique to achieve it. And if you've got three regular players around them, they can be generous. And I can twist the, the challenges a bit, and I can help. But we make sure we always have three experienced players if there's a newcomer who's never played it before. So we have all kinds of little technical production ploys that we use. Mm. Uh, it's so impressive, I think, is the way that the younger generation of comics, comedians, mm. have come on the program, mm. have respected the program, but have brought their own personality to it, which yeah. in turn has rejuvenated the show, I think. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, in, in some ways. I suppose the first one was Paul Merton, because mm. he's been on it a long time. Paul absolutely loves the show, and he's, a, he's very loyal to it, and he's so successful now. I mean, he does the show because he loves doing it. And other people come on, like Graham Norton. They do it because they love it. Radio fees are not great, you know. <laughs> and it wouldn't make a lot of difference to their lifestyle if they didn't do the show. But they come on because they love doing it. And I and, and everybody concerned is so flattered by this. And um, 
And it is, I mean, but actually, Sheena Hancock summed it up recently, because she's a comes on a piece. Well, she said, it, it's so easy, she said. I mean, you don't have to prepare anything. You don't have to memorize anything. You just come along, you arrive, they give you a drink if you want it, and you go on, and it just happens like that. And either you do it or you can't. So there's no preparation, and, and there's no rehearsal. Uh, so it's a much easier job to do. You just arrive half an hour before the recording, do the two recordings, have another drink if you want it, and go home. <laughs> but it must be a bit nerve-wracking, particularly for newcomers, because it's very nerve-wracking. They don't even get a, we don't even give them a chance to have a little rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And so they're thrown in the deep end, and either they sink or swim. But I mean, we don't have that attitude. It's just that's the way the show is devised. What, I mean, would you give any, any aspiring, uh, just a minute, panellist, any advice? I mean, oh, how, yes, what's yes. the best way of playing the game? Well, I mean, Paul's very generous. Uh, he's so good at it, but he's also extraordinarily generous. I mean, people said he gets in just before. Now, that's sheer chance, because there's no clock there. They can't see if it's running down to 58, 59 seconds. It's sheer chance that they get in with one second to go. Because the audience goes, oh, like that. And I play on that, and we have a lot of fun about it. But it, it's sheer chance, and we have a bit of fun. But uh, Paul is such a generous player that if he feels he's dominating the show in some way, he will actually hold back. And, uh, and, and, uh, and he, you know, he, he, he does that, uh, and he plays it in that way. And it, it is very difficult, and, and, and he'll be very generous to a newcomer and everything. But uh, it's fascinating because it requires a lot of different personalities, and they're sparking off each other. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, well, it's all in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they sometimes, they, they're, they're less than respectful to you sometimes, oh, I yes. feel, Nicholas. <laughs> these young tearaways, Merton and Norton. Yes. And you're very good. You're a gr great sport. W well, yes. I said, well, I believe if you've got a sense of humor, you should be able to take a laugh against your, a joke against yourself. Mm -hmm. And I worked as a straight man, as a foil, to a number of comedians. I mean, I had 10 years with Arthur Haynes. Now, Arthur was a great comedian to work with. He always had the gag lines, but he never mind if I got laughs mm -hmm. on character work. And I learned how to be a good foil, someone for him to bounce off. And with Benny Hill, I was with Benny Hill for three years. And I believe, you see, Paul is perhaps the most outrageous one of all. And he will make a joke at my expense, but he has a wonderful ability to let you know there's no hidden agenda, unlike Clement Freud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if Clement could have unsettled me mm -hmm. and embarrassed me, he would, but that's Clement's rather bullying nature. Uh, but don't misunderstand me, he was brilliant in the game. Um, but, but, I mean, and if you're there to take the joke and you laugh as well, they enjoy it. I think one of the I had a 90th birthday party just recently, a year ago, and Paul very generously came along and made a speech. And uh, he started off by saying, a lot of people don't know this, but Nicholas is actually mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I believe, I believe he did the gig at the Last Supper. <laughs> And he said, they weren't a very good audience. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that's brilliant wit, brilliant. And, uh, and you laugh along. I mean I, I, I mean, I just repeated it, but it's so funny, isn't it? It's so clever. I, and, then, and we do have one or two people, I think, back to your previous question, 
who are particularly good at the game, I mean Paul Merton, Giles Brandes is outstanding, uh, and um, uh, uh, Graham Norton, Jenny Eclair, Julian Clary, uh, Paul Sue Perkins, and, and some of them have contributed a, a, a comment in the book. There's a piece there which the publishers were very creative. I mean, I've had wonderful publishers. I must give them credit, Canongate. It's lovely to work with a publisher who brings ideas to it. They said, would it be a good idea, Nicholas, if we got one or two of the regular players to write a little piece and put it in? Oh, wonderful idea. But I said, you, you can't ask them to do it for nothing. Oh, they don't want it. We'll pay them. Well, I said, well, that's great. So there's a lovely piece there from uh, Sue Perkins, from Graham Norton, and from Giles Brandreth, and, um, and Jenny Eclair. And it, it adds a little extra flavor to the book. As well, the, the researchers have done some wonderful things, because we have a, a wonderful fan club. Now, you can say this chap, and I give him credit at the beginning, um, because he runs this fan club uh, called, um, and uh, he is so dedicated to the show, it's almost like his life. I mean, he's, he's got a recording of every show. He's listed every person who's ever appeared, every subject that's ever been used, how long people went on each subject. And, uh, Does it get out much? <laughs> well, you see, that's the unkind thing to say. <laughs> and you can say, well, that man, he's a But then, let's be kind to him. He's a sweet man. And I always give him tickets for every recording. But to him, uh, he, he's obviously a very shy man. And uh, th this is his life. This is what gives him huge pleasure. So let's be kind and say, if this is going to mean a lot to him, good luck. I mean, some people are mad about their gardens and do an awful lot of gardening. My brother never left his garden. His children were neglected. And um, so, I mean, you can say, why does he spend so much time in the garden? And some people don't care less. And, um, and so, anyway, he's been very helpful because he's got all his information. And the, the chap who edited, and I've written it, but you have an editor, and, and I work very closely with David Wilson, who was wonderful. But he contacted Keith. Keith Matthews is the name of that chap. And uh, he got this information from them. And he got some of the quotes, because he went through all kinds of material. I couldn't have done that sort of research. I've written the book, but I haven't done the background research. I'm just give, so I've given credit to, to David there. So what they've done, which is, I think, a lovely idea, there's some little comments. Lift it up and show them mm -hmm. in the back. <laughs> No, the other way around. The book, you've oh. got it upside down. <laughs> there we are. How about that? No, give the, bit, give the bloody thing to me. <laughs> At the back. Those, those are actual things people have said in the show at different times. And inside, there's a whole lot of those. Um, and uh, it, they make fascinating reading. Little gems that have been extracted from the different recordings. So it, it's a very comprehensive book. It's not just how it all started, which I've been telling you about, and some of the people who've been in it, and all the gossip, the background, yes, which I've given you a little bit of today, with <laughs> dear Kenneth Williams and, and uh, my friend here. But, but you've got all these other little gems like that. And there's extracts from actual recordings, as well as all my comments about it. And uh, it's very beautifully produced, isn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't design it. I said today to the publishers at Canongate, to Danny, and I said, uh, yes, it is, but, but who designed it? They, didn't, they just sent it to me. Do you like it, Nicholas? Oh, thank you very much. Yes, I do. But you see, this is where you have to have a good publisher. And Canongate have been wonderful. They're based, they're based up here in Edinburgh, if you're Scottish. Uh, I don't know what will happen if we get the uh, 
No, no, no. Um, I, I, I have to, I'm partly Scottish, and I did five years on Clydebank Hill, trying to be an engineer to please my family, because I wanted to be an actor from my youngest age possible, and my parents were horrified. Well, in those days, you didn't go into the theatre as my mother called it. You didn't. You did it for fun if you wanted to, but not seriously. My father said, "You've got to get a proper job. You don't fool around like that and make money. It's ridiculous." And my mother thought everybody in the entertainment industry was either debased, debauched, or degenerate. <laughs> and someone like me would probably finish off as an alcoholic pervert in the gutter. <laughs> I said to her one time, I said to her, I don't understand your attitude because you love going to the theatre. She said, yes, I do. She's very popular, my mother. <laughs> I hope I haven't inherited it. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I can, I can play pomposity, but I'm not naturally pompous, right? Uh, and I said, you admire people like Laurence Olivier and Leslie Howard and Peggy Ashcroft and people like that. I said, do you think they're like all those people you describe? And she said, no. But isn't it a pity they have to work with those sort of people? <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I was never going to get anywhere there. And as I've always been very capable of making things and repairing things, which I see being created with your hands. I mean, I'm very much into clocks. I've got a number of clocks which I put together from bits and pieces and repaired. And I've still got them. I pass them on now to my children because I'm getting pretty old. But um, uh, they thought engineering. And uh, technically, I was never cut out to be an engineer. But we got in touch with relations up here. Because <coughs> um, we have relations in, in Glasgow. I'll tell you where they are, for anybody who knows. They're in Beer's Den. <laughs> quite close to Mogai. <laughs> And they knew some people who had an engineering yard on Clydebank called Drysdale, so made pumps. And the next thing I knew, during the war, I was on a train coming up to Glasgow to begin an engineering apprenticeship at Clydebank. I got some digs at the YMCA. The next day I was on the car, the green car, going down to Dumbarton. And then I arrived there in the blackout, because, I mean, uh, during the war, you know, no lights even at 8 o'clock in the morning. And it was, it was January. I thought I'd entered another world. I thought they were talking a different language. I'll pray and tell you now, I should go there. It's all right, Father. I jump up and back over You don't have a friend at that bar. And then. And then when I get there, I'm introduced to you, and I came with the. English public school accent there. And I, I, was, I was such an incongruous situation. I probably said to her, well, hello, chaps. What are we going to do today? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it was strange to me. I was a fish out of water to them. But I mean, somehow they accepted me. I remember them coming to me one day and they said, hey, no, I said, you know, you, you've got that war, war accent over there, but this is life, you know. This is loving. This is what I said about. We'll teach you who to get your effing horns dirty. <laughs> Oh, no, you book her, don't you? Because you, you make us laugh, you're doing the fascinations of the, of the gaffer and all that. But um, I'll tell you this, Nicholas. You knuckle down. By the time you leave here, you'll be a man. <laughs> and they were right. I look, I, I survived. And I actually, a, a journalist gave me the clue. They said, how did you survive? I said, I don't know. And I think it was the actor, because I was dedicated to being a performer. And as an actor, you go out and you face your audience and you try to make a rapport with them. And I think I instinctively knew if I was going to survive there, I needed to make a rapport. And I did make a rapport. 
and they became my mates. And, you know, and I'm proud of that fact. And it did in five years. I mean, I've got my lines to prove it as they go as apprenticeship lines. And then I went to the Merchant Navy. I'm not interested in all this. It's not in the book, <laughs> <laughs> That was in my memoirs which I did two years ago. Yes. Can I drag you back to just a minute, Tony? Yes, I love going back to just a minute, Tony. Did, I mean, did you listen to some of the early shows as part of your kind of uh, research for the book? Well, well I've got the... an, an amazing memory. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm dyslexic, and they didn't know what it was when I was young. And one thing I've discovered about dyslexics, I went to a school where I gave the prizes away for the dyslexic. And when I wrote my memoirs, I never opened a scrapbook, I never opened a, a diary, and anything. it all came flooding back. I had it there. And they said, apparently, this is one of the uh, uh, idiosyncrasies, or whatever you want to call it, of someone who's dyslexic. You have very good recall. So I remember all this. That's how I got through my exams at school. I didn't know, but obviously, unconsciously, I was using my memory. And, and it's been invaluable in just a minute, I can tell you. But I mean, I did that. But, and I can remember all these things. Because once you give me the, the key in, it all comes back. I mean, just to take, give you an example, but my memory, it is this job I do here is the biggest job of concentration that I can possibly do. Because I have no backup. I have to listen very acutely. And if someone challenges, I have to know instantly, in order to keep the fun going, whether it was hesitation. But most importantly, was it repetition? Had they used that word before, or a little while back? And I have to listen to every word and record every word somewhere so know immediately whether it's hesitation or repetition. Deviation is, is an, an adjustment and interpretation. And so my memory has been utterly invaluable. As I said somewhere, uh, and, and of course I'm a great believer, the more you use your brain, the more you use your memory, the younger you remain. And I think I'm not bad for 90 years of age. No, indeed. <laughs> and the thing is that I'm a great believer that you treat your brain as a muscle and keep using it and do Sudokus and crosswords and things like that. And I said, well, aren't I lucky? I have a job which is so demanding on the memory, it's helping to keep me young. What about the ladies, if I may say so, on the panel? I mean, Sheila, Sheila Hancock was an mm. early member. Andre Melly, who was an actress at uh, the time. Andre was on quite early. She yes. was very, very good. And, and then it was mainly the chaps, but latterly, uh, women have come more frequently on the show. Yes, they have. Do I they mean, play it in a different way, women? Is there a female way as opposed to a male? I mean, if you're an old pro like Sheila Hancock, she plays yeah. it exactly the same way as the boys. When she used to come on, and it was a bit of a male-orientated show, like the other ones I mentioned, and Sheila would come on, and then the, 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 the lads would start arguing amongst themselves, which I sorted out, and Sheila would often say, oh, God, they're at it again. Oh, the boys are at it again. And, and she didn't want to come on because she felt they were being uh, sort of rather naughty, like naughty schoolboys. And I think, in a way, there's an essence of success there that, which... That man's creeping away. Where's he going? I've got to take more photographs. <laughs> Was it something I said? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Thank you for telling me. I did realise that. <laughs> but I was trying to get a laugh, you see. I'm a bit of a comic. And so where, where was I? We were talking about Sheila Hancock and... Um, yes, and in those days, I think the, um, 
We had difficulty finding women who could play the game. I think because the boys played it very much as naughty boys at school and, mm. and we were all there uh, having all that ribbing of each other. But nowadays, we, we do like to try and balance the sexes. I don't want the show to become sort of chauvinist mm -hmm. and no women. And there's some wonderful women who do it, like uh, Jenny Eclair and, and Sue Perkins, who's got the most brilliant performer. She's got the most wonderful brain. And she goes, you know, and Sheila Hancock who comes back, Asian, Jenny Eclair, and, uh, and uh, Josie Williams, uh, Josie... Um, Lawrence. Lawrence, thank you very much. Uh, that one slipped away for a moment, but it's come back again. And, um, <laughs> and, and so we do, and we, we always, the producers always make sure that we always have a, a female input in the show. It's good, it, it, it makes, makes for a better combination of fun and element. I mean, uh, you must be, I don't know, if the Guinness Book of Records or something, but there can't be many shows that have been running for such a long time to be presented by the same individual. Mm. I mean, you must be in some book of records somewhere. Do you know the fan club, bless their hearts, have tried to get me into the Guinness Book of Records, and the Guinness Book of Records very pompously said no. And their argument is ridiculous, because I think they like to have people who've been on a one bicycle from people who've sat in a tree longest time, or <laughs> people who've threaded most needles in a minute. And, um, uh, because they said, well, there's other shows that have run just as long. And they said, yeah, there's other shows that have run just as long, and um, Desert Island Disc has run even longer, but this is the only show that's run for a record number of years, and it's still the same person presenting it who was in the original mm. pilot. And they haven't got a category for that, so I'm not in the Guinness Book of Records. Well, they should invent one. I should invent one, and all these people here will write in and say, <laughs> right. <laughs> Because even, I mean, as you say, Desert Island Discs, The Archers, mm. I, I think these are the only programmes I can think of that have run for longer than just a minute. Oh, yes, so. The Archers is a different show. Of Indeed. Course, but and and, and uh, Desert Island Discs, but it was Roy Plumley who invented it mm -hmm. and did it originally presented it, but he's had a number of different presenters yeah. over the years. Well, exactly. And it is the probably longest running show on Radio 4. Except for the artists, but then that's drama. Mm. I mean, how much freedom do, do, do various producers occasionally at the BBC want to interfere into how the game is played or the rules of the game? Do you have to sort of fend them off from time to time? Oh, no, 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 for goodness <laughs> sake. I mean, it's a cooperative show. I mean, if you're a producer and you engage incredibly talented, high profile people, you don't tell them how to do their job. <laughs> Well, in, I mean, their, their, their expertise comes in the editing, in the sense that, uh, you know, they, they have to trim some, because we record about 35 minutes, and you have to trim on all the gagging and fun in between. And if a naughty word creeps in, they better be sure that comes out. And mind you, they're, they're more, more accommodating now than they used to be. The person who, it's in the book, uh, <laughs> it, it, it happened first when Peter Jones, was on, and he was always lovely and very witty. And um, the subject was something to do with Bogner. I don't know what it was. Mm. And he said that George the... I don't know which George it was. George the Fifth. No, it wasn't George the Fifth. No, he no. was dying. Uh, it was George the Fifth, you know. And mm. someone on his deathbed said to him about, you know, maybe soon when you go down to Bogner, he said, uh, and he said, bugger Bogner, and died. <laughs> and Peter Jones said it on the show. And of course, they were absolutely horrified because how could they get the scissors and, and cut out the bugger <laughs> and keep in the bogger? <laughs> and uh, I think at the end they just bleeped it. <laughs> but now somebody said it since, 
is being kept in. And we did a, a program once when the, where some of the subject was limericks, and Derek Nimmo came out with one of the sorted limericks <laughs> I've ever heard, and they kept it in. But there, there is a little bit more leeway. I mean, I mean, the point is this: we are circumspect. We don't do uh, anything crude for laughs. I'll tell you the limerick that he put in. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can remember it now. Um, Must be in the book. Um, uh, it's brilliantly indexed. Why mm. don't I? No, no. <laughs> See if I can uh, um, find it for you. I know. Um, a gay young man from Truton took a lesbian up to his room. They sat on the bed, and then each of them said, Now, who does what? And we're which into. That memory again, Nicholas. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I haven't said that for 14 years. <laughs> well, looking at the clock, it's high time that we opened it to the floor and had some oh, questions yes, from our eager audience. Yeah. We have microphones mm. at the ready. We have that photographer still kneeling down there. So I hear a hand up in the middle of the row there. Mm. Here comes the mic. If you'd like to pass it along, I'd like to keep your hand up. That's it. Hello. Uh, Hello. Given your talent for impersonation, mm. I wondered if you'd like to ha get your own back at Jack D for the way he likes to make fun of you. Well, no, I don't. I'm, I'm not in the age of tit for tat. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand it actually, because what she's referring to is that on the. Um, 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 I'm the sorry, um, I'm Yes, all right, I know it. Well, oh, right. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't a clue, which is wonderful, and I love it. For some reason, Jack D um, has done this thing about. I go on endlessly at the beginning, talking about you know it's a good show and now and, and we come all our listeners and actually, it's I am a bit longer in my introduction than any other show, and the reason is quite simple. Ours is the only show that doesn't have an announcer. One of our producers, I think it was Ted Taylor. I think it'd be a nice idea, because uh, you introduce it. So if you listen to it, we have, uh, I say, Welcome to Just a Minute, which is also the title of the book, by the way. <laughs> and um, then the minute wall starts, it fades out, and I say, Hello, my name is Nicholas Parsons, and no announcer, you see. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to Just a Minute, and all our listeners from around the world. <laughs> then I introduce the four players, and so forth. So normally it's an announcer who does that, and I do it all. So you do hear me say more in way of introduction than any other show. And Jack D has, uh, well, the writers have taken this off by <coughs> overdoing it, sort of saying, and now we come to love here, and we've got some wonderful players on now. They're, oh, they're so talented, it's a great joy to have them on, and, uh, and so forth. And of course, you have our listeners all around the world, and uh, they write in sometimes, and they're very kind. And that's a person who would love to be here and uh, see this audience looking at them and so forth. And he goes on like that, and the audience laugh. And they think they're sending me up. Probably they are, but I don't think they're sending me up. I just think they're playing for a cheap laugh. <laughs> right. But don't right. misunderstand me. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. It's a great show. And, they're so, and Jack is brilliant. Because they thought when uh, uh, What's-His-Name died, uh, they couldn't find a replacement. But Jack D is brilliant in that particular format. Well, you should invite him on just a minute and see how he gets on. Well, we could do that. It's, not, it's nothing to do with me. I have to tell them, I mean, we're invidious if I invited the guest on. I mean, no, that's the producer's responsibility. Right, well, I think we should 
suggest it to them. Mm. Anyway, some more questions. Is that it? Here in the second row. And so, then I mean, can I ask that? What is your reaction to Jack D doing that? Oh, you are. <laughs> oh, you can come again. Yeah. <laughs> the perfect audience. Now, here we are. It's a question in the second row. Uh, you mentioned that. Could you speak up? You're right. No. Sorry, you mentioned that Jonathan Ross was on recently. Mm. Yes, yesterday, in fact. Mm. I wonder, did he behave himself on the show? He, he it was wonderful. He didn't phone you up at home afterwards. I believe he's got <laughs> a habit of doing that. Phone me up at home afterwards and do what? Yes. Well, as he and Russell Brand did once. <laughs> yes. That's the reference. Oh, I see. There was Russell Brand. No, no. He didn't indulge in what uh, he was doing with uh, um, the fellow from uh, um, the, um, the other show. I don't gone now for the moment. You know. Uh, May I? Hmm? Andrew yes. Sachs? Yes. Yeah, I'm talking about, thinking about Andrew Sachs. But yes. What's the program with, with John Cleese? Uh, Forty Towers. Forty Towers, Forty yes. Towers. No, no. There was none of that. No, no. Gentleman in the front here. Can I say, are you planning a global stadium tour to celebrate the 50th anniversary? <laughs> <laughs> no, the sad thing is, we used to, it was in the book, by the way, um, <laughs> we always used to record them at the um, 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 Paris Studio on Lower Regent Street, and then they did some also at the Playhouse Theatre, and then it went to the Radio Theatre, because they saved money inside Broadcasting House. And then they had this wonderful idea, a Sandy Chalmers sort of it, and taking uh, the, uh, the radio to the people. And so they used to book us to go out to different venues outside L London. And they looked after us very well. They put us up in a nice hotel and gave us a nice meal. And it was very popular because the people you go to, you go up to the Alhambra or somewhere, they're so, gr in, in, in Bradford, so grateful that you made the effort to go there. But latterly, because of the cutbacks they've got, and I mean, I don't understand, when they cut back, they cut back on the shows which are popular. I mean, they send a fortune on Strictly Come Dancing. They don't prune their budget, but they prune our budget. And they can only save a minimum amount anyway. So we do do always two at the Edinburgh Festival, and we do two somewhere else. And well, that's one visit. Uh, but that's what we do, and we would like to go out more often. I think it's lovely. Because uh, they're so grateful, the people are, when you get there. I mean, how many programs do you do a year? Is it about 12 or no, a bit more? They've now, there was a time when we used to do 26 a year, mm. half the year, but they've got it very well organized now. We do three series of eight, so three eights are 24. Mm -hmm. So it's 24, maybe it's 26 sometimes, but, but that's how they do it. So they do it in sections. Because they have these four top comedy shows they consider the BBC radio. One is, in just a minute, um, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, the news quiz and the now show. And they're on their peak slots, and uh, those are their top mm -hmm. favourite comedy shows. Good. Now, some more questions. And over here, there's a hand up right at the back, so mm -hmm. here comes the microphone. I'd like to keep the hand in the air. You could have expressed that better, Alan, the hand <laughs> at the back. <laughs> I'll work on it. Mm. <laughs> there we go. Oh, there we are. They're all <laughs> oh, I'm going to pass it down the line. Yes. Hello, Mr. Parsons. Hello, my darling. I'm glad you found a seat in the end. <laughs> um, always for you. Um, you've got such a wide career, um, and you have a very distinctive voice. Have and, I? And I hear that you, your, one of your latest projects is uh, that you were invited to uh, bring to life one of the London statues, and you were selected oh, to right. 
voice uh, Hodge the cat. Hodge's cat, that's right. Um, and I'm wondering, do you um, have any idea why they selected your voice for that of a cat? And if you'd had the choice of any other statue, what might it have been? <laughs> no, I was just flattered they wanted me to give the work. I mean, we don't argue when work's offered, and they wanted me to do um, Hodgson's, um, uh, Samuel Johnson's cat. Uh, I didn't even know at the time, but there's a statue of him where he used to live in Gough Square, and the, beside him is his cat. He was devoted to this cat. So the cat's there as a statue. And there's a new thing they've evolved where statues can talk to you. You go up there, I don't know, I haven't done it yet. You go up there and you press a button and the, the statue talks to you. And it's a well-known voice uh, doing the, 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 the statue. And I'm doing the cat, Johnson's cat. Do you know who's doing Dr. Johnson? I don't even know they've got one for Dr. Johnson. Right. I don't know. Maybe they thought the cat was more important. <laughs> So, you know, I try to be sort of cat-like and then <laughs> yes, off I by saying, Meow, it's lovely to be here. I just hope you're enjoying it. I've been sitting here for 40 years now. 50 years. Yo, oh, you know. Just, just perfect, you might say. Mm. <laughs> no, no, that was a good gag. Moving quickly gag. across. Any questions from stage right here? Yes, yeah. there we are. You can get to her more quickly than the man. Yes, that's so. so. Mm -hmm. Hello. Um, Hello. A few years ago, you tr they transferred, just a minute, to television. How do you think that went? Well, they, it's very sad, actually, because the last time it, the BBC did it, uh, uh, and it was very successful, and we got wonderful viewing figures. And, and most importantly, they do a thing with the BBC, they have um, viewing figures and appreciation figures. And our appreciation figures were some of the highest they've ever had. But I think they sent it out at the wrong time, because it did at 6 o'clock, the slot where they have eggheads on. And really, it's, it's a comedy show like, have I got news for you? It should go out at 9 or 9.30 at night, because it's clever, bright um, comedy performers being clever and original. And um, I think the, the powers that be, uh, who were not often in production, they thought, well, oh, it's a quiz. Oh, oh, we'll take off uh, the, the um, eggheads. They, they do quizzes, they answer questions, and they, and they put us into that slot. And that audience, because a slot builds a certain audience, wasn't right for just a minute. So um, they haven't revived it. And it's very sad. And I wish they would. I've written about it in the book, by the way. <laughs> and um, it does work very well on television. Um, some people think, well, it works so well on radio, so maybe why should we bother? Thank you for that. Now, any other... Yes, hand up here. There's the mic. Oh, still up there. Come on. Chop, chop. <laughs> you were around here. End of the row. Lady here. Thank you very much. Now that you have reached this venerable age, mm -hmm. would you like to select the young men who will play you when they make a film of your life. I don't like to think about that. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. You're asking me to think what will happen when I go. No, no, before you go, you must have a hand in it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I can't put in my will, if you make a story in my life, you know, I want Paul Merton to play me. Or <laughs> uh, I don't think like that, my love. I honestly don't think like that. I mean, people have said, when you go, who will do just a minute? 
And I said, well, I don't like to think about that either. I'm sure that um, they'll find somebody. They thought they couldn't replace um, the um, jazz pianist, uh, jazz musician, what's his name? Um, oh, hmm? What's that? Humphrey Littleton, yeah, thank you very much. It did slip for a moment. Well, I actually am exhausted from having done my show up here for two and a half weeks in Nicholas Parsons' happy hour. I've done, every day I've done extra broadcasts and extra shows, and my brain is now really very tired. I can't wait to go home tomorrow and do nothing at home for, except the garden and things like that. And um, so Humphrey Littleton's name did slip away, and I think they thought Humphrey made the, that role so much his own that uh, they couldn't replace him. And they did three shows. They tried it once with uh, Stephen Fry, was quite good, and then once with someone else, and then with Jack Dean. And Jack has got that acerbic uh, basic thing, and I think it's absolutely wonderful. And he has turned out to be a very good replacement for Humphrey Littleton. And I think they'll probably do the same. They won't let the show go. They'll, they might uh, give a sort of respect for a little while. They'll find somebody else. I don't want to think about it then. Well, no, let's not dwell on that subject. No. <laughs> anyway, just time, I think, for one last question. Oh, you're in luck. Very sh mm. short walk, mm. the lady at the end of the row. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I just Madame. wondered if it was a coincidence when I noticed the colour of your socks as you came in, mm -hmm. whether you have covered yourself in the same colours as the cover of your book. There's not a lot of red on it. <laughs> There's not a lot of red on the back. I mean, I, I, I like to wear red socks. Actually, I'll tell you this little story. <laughs> Those socks are over other socks. Because I've got lots of lovely red socks. And they're slipping down a bit because above them, I've got these... Thing. I got a DVD. I always call it DVD. It says DBT. <laughs> and I thought you only got them on aeroplanes. But apparently, if you get older, you can get them for any reason at all. And I got this on Boxing Day. And they said, well, you must go straight to um, A&E. But my, I wasn't going to do that. And I phoned up my nephew, who doesn't live very far away, as a doctor. And he came round and he said, yes, you've got DVD. This leg came for three times its size. And I, I've been happy to, I've got to wear these for the rest of my bloody life. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't swear. Can you edit that bit out? <laughs> And so I managed now to squeeze my socks over them because I've got to keep wearing them. And um, for six months, my wife had to inject me every day in the stomach. She quite enjoyed it in the end. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, uh, so I don't know whether this is answering your thing, but no, no, I've always worn red socks and I've loved them. I got lots of colorful socks. And, uh, I don't think it had any influence on the on the jacket of the, of the book, and there's only a couple of little bits of red there. And uh, I've already told you about my DVD. It's a, I think utterly boring, but there we are. Uh, but thank you for remarking on my socks. Well, exactly. <laughs> but I have to try and pull them over these. Um, I don't wonder they call these socks these um, uh, special ones. Like the thing, leggings, like the thing. No, no. Stockings. Stockings. Yeah, they're special stockings. <laughs> Pressure stockings, yes, Pressure which, you wear, stockings. which you wear if you go on a long-haul flight. And uh, I said, well, what happens if I go on a long-haul flight? And I said, oh, you're all right. 
because you, you're having the injection, so they're right, you're safe. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so it's um, rather sad. But thank you for remarking on that. And so, but I thought you, you might have remarked on the fact that I, I wear cravats a lot. Yes. I wear a cravat of different, lots of lovely cravats. And I started wearing cravats a number of years ago, and I thought I might bring back the cravat. Because I think the open neck shirt look is rather ugly. I mean, that is not... <laughs> That is not the most attractive part of a man's anatomy, is Adam's apple. <laughs> All right in the summer, just a shirt on and a short, maybe. But if you're going to put a... I've seen people with beautifully tailored jackets on, and there's a, a shirt there, and that awful Adam's apple thing through. And so I thought, I'd bring back the cravat. And nobody's followed me. <laughs> but I don't mind, because now that's my own personal fashion statement. And in my show up here at the Fringe, which I've just finished, Every day I wear a different cravat. And I think cravats are nice. It covers that, that rather unattractive part of your anatomy. And <laughs> I think it finishes things off. Fashion tips from... Let's I, let's I, I'm interested to know how many people think that if you've got a smart suit on and you have an open neck shirt, is that attractive? Would you agree or not? No. So why do men do it? <laughs> then we are. What an interesting way to finish. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> if you have any more questions, ladies and gentlemen, to coin a phrase, the answers to them will be in the book. Mm. And Nicholas will be signing copies of the book, yeah, the yes. celebration of Just a Minute Next Door in the big signing era, out that door, turn left and left again. If they buy the book first. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get there first and have them ready and get them all organised. Nicholas, it's been an extraordinary session. I think I can say that. I think you are a national treasure, and we love you to bits. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please thank you. Thank Nicholas Barton. Thank you, Al. Thank you. Thank you for my hand. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.